That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hello, friends and neighbors. Happy New Year and welcome to this first roundtable of 2021 on the Bill Press Pod. And little did we know we'd be starting off the year with such a bang. But if you added up all our years of experience reporting, none of us have seen a week like this one, and none of us want to see another one like it. Where at the invitation and instigation of the President of the United States, a mob of his supporters invaded and occupied the U.S. Capitol for four hours and resulted in the deaths of five people, including that of a Capitol Hill police officer where, again, at the president's urging, seven U.S. senators and 138 members of the House voted to overturn Joe Biden's victory in the 2020 presidential election and keep Donald Trump in the White House, where, in response to both, there's now active efforts to toss Trump out of the White House, either by the 25th Amendment or by impeaching him for the second time, and where, finally, Finally, Donald Trump finally admits that he will not serve a second term. Wow. Here to discuss what happened and how we get out of this mess, Maya King, campaign 2020 reporter for Politico. Hi, Maya. Hi there. Leah Askarinam, Hotline's editor-in-chief at the National Journal. Hello, Leah. Hi, Bill. Welcome back. Ginger Gibson, deputy Washington editor for NBC News Digital who was actually reporting from the Capitol that wild Wednesday, January 6th. Hi, Ginger. Hi, Bill. And also joining us here at the top of the program, uh, who was on his job at Capitol Hill that chaotic day, political reporter for Huffington Post, Igor Babish. Hello, Igor. Hey, Bill. So let's start uh, with the action on January 6th with the two who were there uh, Ginger and then Igor Ginger, where were you and when did you first sense that <laughs> something was uh, happening and then what came down? Yeah, uh, you know, the building was is weird right now. I mean, I've covered the Hill for a long time. And as you uh, sort of alluded to there, I've become an editor, so I don't normally go up there anymore. But uh, for staffing issues, I had volunteered to cover Wednesday. So I went, put my reporter hat on to be there. And um, there are no tourists in the building. So parts of the building get really eerily quiet when there's no tourists there. And I stood in the rotunda as the senators and Pence were walking back to the Senate chamber, and I could hear the crowds outside. And I realized that, that they were on all sides of us. And that was when I started to get the sense that things weren't normal. Um, but it was really sort of later when I was standing uh, up on the third floor uh, above the Senate chambers uh, in a hallway, looking out onto the West Front where uh, we inaugurate presidents. And I saw them coming over the barricades um, and the crowds coming up into the building. Um, 
police started shouting at us to get away from the windows. And so I walked down the hallway and you you have this sense of security that if you're in the building, you're safe. Um, And I walked down the hall and that was when I realized that I was hearing the crowd, not from the outside, but from the inside of the building. Mm. Um, And a cop came up running at me and and another uh, a TV producer who was with me and said, you know, you need to go and take cover. They've they've gotten inside. He shouted at us um, and we could hear them. And and that's when I knew that, that things uh, had, had sort of gone astray. And and I would later see a video that I think uh, Igor is going to talk about um, that was playing out just below my feet. I was at the top of the stairs and he was at the bottom. Um, And I, I didn't know what was going on, but I could, I could hear it. Yeah, Igor, tell us about that. Your video uh, is one of the ones that I've seen most replayed on all the different networks. Uh, uh, so where were you when things started, and uh, and how did you capture this video? Yeah, so I was on the third floor of the Senate, actually, in the middle of reporting on the, the, the debate over the certification, uh, electoral certification inside, when I heard a bunch of shouting and commotion and immediately ran downstairs to check it out and, and uh, luckily managed to turn, to turn my camera on right before as I was, as I was running down. And that's why you could see in that video that I posted just my kind of feet barreling down to the first floor where I uh, ran uh, straight into this lone police officer who was trying to do his best to keep this, this crowd of this mob of about 20 Trump supporters at bay uh, but being uh, unable to do so, and you could see him uh, brandish his his sort of nightstick, which fell at one point. Um, mm-hmm. But he did he did not draw his weapon, which which I found interesting. Um, and ultimately, they they forced him to retreat back up the stairs to the second floor, where where there were two entrances to the Senate, um, and uh, right steps outside the Senate floor, where there's this confrontation between these. Uh, this group of uh, people and uh, the police officers themselves. Uh, you identify them as Trump supporters, just for the record. Uh, that that's who they are, right? That's who they that's who they they were. That's who they are. They were wearing the gear. There was no doubt about who they were. There's no doubt about that. And in subsequent re- reporting, uh, we've seen that a couple of them are prominent QAnon uh, supporters as well. Right, uh, Ginger. Did you ever worry for your life? I think in the moment you turn a reporter brain on, right? So like in the moment I was more trying to figure out what was happening and send feeds. There was a moment where my husband called me and said, you know, there's smoke. I can see smoke on TV. And I sort of calmly told him like, I'm fine. Don't worry. I'm here in the building. We're locked in. And in my mind, I was imagining the police were downstairs sort of putting it all all down calmly and that we would be fine in a few minutes that took much longer than that. They have a moment where I thought if they set the building on fire, um, mm. I'm up in this room and it's going to be very hard for me to get out. Uh, but I pushed that, that thought aside. I will say that, you know, Igor talks about his experience. He was also sort of doing just miracle work at the time and was sending to to reporters dispatches of what he was seeing so I could see in my email what he was doing and um eventually he made it up into the room where I was and I just I remember opening the door and seeing him there and like I actually said to him I kind of want to hug you I'm so glad you made it up here <laughs> um like I was it was just like this moment of like relief almost that like one person that I thought was possibly in harm's way had like made it 
out safely, uh, even though we were all still in the building. So, um, I, you know, there wasn't that moment of clarity where I'm like, I'm in danger. You know, I, I didn't confront the, the crowds like some people did, but there were moments where you were like, holy cow, this is really happening. And I'm really watching this unfold. And Igor, was that the secure location where you spent the rest of the the, the, the time of the occupation? Um, that was kind of the place that we had all as a group decided to hide. And that was the first place I found other reporters that I could hide with. <laughs> yeah. Um, we eventually moved, moved later, evacuated later to a secure location, but, um, the, you, the, uh, pardon, you can't tell us where that was, I guess. Right. No. Well, at, at this point, I think we can, it, it was just a Senate office building nearby. And so you had to go through the underground tunnel. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, but initially, I mean, <laughs> I would be lying if I didn't say I, I felt uh, a little scared when I was taking that video. Uh, part of me was thinking, man, this is really dumb. I should <laughs> really run and get out of here. Um, but uh, I, I kind of I felt a little bit more un, unwary when they had actually gotten into the Senate chamber itself on the third floor. And I was sort of tracking them and following them as they uh, broke into the public galleries and kind of rappelled down to the Senate floor and even got onto the uh, the days where Mike Pence was presiding over only minutes before and, you know, posed for pictures and screamed that Trump would be president. Um, it, it was in that moment where I felt a little more uncertain because there was just no police presence. It, it was almost like they were letting them roam through the Capitol by themselves. I was going to ask, uh, Ginger and Igor, who was in charge? Did you, or did you have any sense that anybody was in charge? Ginger, I I think that in the moment in my mind, I thought surely the police are downstairs, like you know, guns drawn, handling all this. And then I was seeing that that was not the case. I mean, from our vantage point, as you were described, the place we were hiding, um, we saw capital capital police. One capital police officer showed up. I think after about an hour well, more than an hour, and told us that uh, he did not think it was safe for us to try to leave that hiding place. Um, a little while later, some armed ATF agents showed up um, and told us that they were they were clearing the building, they were in the building, so we, we knew someone was there, but they also told us we, it was not safe enough to leave. It was, you know, I was in there at least two hours and 45 minutes, I could tell based on the timestamps on my pictures, um, mm -hmm. before... Capitol Police showed up and then told us we're evacuating you. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think from a from the personal standpoint, we had no idea who we had. We had sort of no yeah. actual sense of who was in charge. And then from a journalistic standpoint, I mean, Capitol Police wasn't communicating with us. We weren't getting press releases. They weren't telling us. They weren't sending communications. We got, you know, that there is a system in the building where they can talk to us. Um, they used it one time, and that was at the very beginning when they told us to shelter in place, and, and we got no more communications uh, mm -hmm. while we sheltered for that time. Igor, did you hear any gunfire? Uh, no, I did not. I did hear a lot of um, uh, it, what seemed like tear gas canisters exploding. Right. Um, and um, for those firsthand accounts of Ginger and from uh, Ginger and Igor, we thank you very much. Igor, I know you've got to, uh, it's a very busy time for you. Uh, you've got to take off, but uh, thanks for giving us some time this morning. And we're glad you're safe and uh, good work on the job there, man. Thanks, Bill. All right. So um, let's continue. Uh, and the question uh, is who was in charge, we talked about, but also 
maybe who's responsible for this. Liz Cheney, the number three Republican in the House, had her idea expressed about who uh, should get the blame. Here she is. There's no question that the president formed the mob, the president incited the mob, the president addressed the mob, he lit the flame. The president lit the flame. Leah, um, Donald Trump, going to be held responsible? That's a great question. Uh, and that I, I don't know the answer. Right now, we're seeing this kind of splintering where everybody's unanimously saying that uh, the riot was uh, unconstitutional. Republicans are calling for the people involved to be uh, prosecuted. We're seeing, you know, people get frustrated or people express outrage at the actual riot. But when it comes to Trump's response, we're seeing a bit of a split. So on one hand, you're seeing high-profile resignations, you know, Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos. But further down, you're seeing, you know, some Republicans come out against Trump and say they are, you know, they're no longer true believers. But you're not seeing tons of that. And you're not seeing it from Kevin McCarthy. You're not seeing it from some Republicans who even represent districts that Joe Biden won, like Mike Garcia in California. Um, so I think we were kind of at this moment of, of reckoning. And we d I don't know which direction we're going. I, I think it's important to emphasize that while cabinet resignations are newsworthy and important to cover, Elaine Chao and Betsy DeVos are not the leaders of the Republican Party. Um, I don't know how, what kind of impact their departure actually has on, on what happens next. Right. Uh, by the way, I just want to point out that Kevin McCarthy, of course, has been loyal to Trump right to the uh, still today and to the end. He was one of those who voted uh, to overturn the uh, electoral uh, votes submitted by Arizona and Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, unlike, oh, sorry. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, A majority of House Republicans did vote yes. to challenge those, I think 138. Yeah, so just I was contrasting him with the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, who did break with Trump on that and urged his Republicans to accept reality, unlike Kevin McCarthy. Uh, just want to make that point. But the other, uh, so will Donald Trump be held responsible? And Maya... Uh, other people are asking, a lot of people are also asking, will the Capitol Police be held responsible? Because clearly they were not prepared for this. Uh, they had not taken the necessary steps. Uh, and many people, including the president-elect yesterday, made the point that their response to the threat of white Trump supporters uh, vastly different from their response a year or so ago to mainly, not mainly, but to of uh, the Black Lives Matter protests um, in in response to the, to the murder of George Floyd. Here's the president-elect yesterday, Wilmington, Delaware. No one can tell me that if had been a group of Black Lives Matter protesting yesterday, and they wouldn't have been treated very, very differently than the mob of thugs that stormed the Capitol. We all know that's true. And it is unacceptable, totally unacceptable. The American people saw it in plain view. I hope it sensitizes them to what we have to do. Maya, no doubt that's the case, right? Absolutely. I think we can look at um, one specific instance that really shows the difference in the way that police have responded to the situation. I'm thinking about last summer in Lafayette Square, where um, police officers came and tear gassed a crowd of largely peaceful protesters. 
uh, right. to make room for President Trump to uh, have a photo op uh, in front of uh, St. John's Episcopal Church. I mean, that was another situation that was really ingrained in the minds of Americans. It was a really disgraceful moment, I think, for an, and in the minds of a number of people um, in saying that this was really a violation of First Amendment rights. And now contrasting that with um, this crowd, this mob of Trump supporters who were largely able to very easily make their way into the Capitol complex and very easily make their way out. Um, as of yesterday, I think we have about 55 arrests total as a result of the uh, the insurrection at the Capitol, and um, 40 of them are criminal, 15 of them are federal. And th- I saw way more than 55 people in there um, on Wednesday. And we're hearing now just this growing chorus of Democrats who are condemning um, the police's handling of the situation. And we know that Stephen Sund, the head of Capitol Police, has already resigned. Um, and so you know, I think the question now is how many heads will roll as a result of this, but it's just very obviously a, a blatant mismanagement or, um, as uh, the, the president-elect said, an unequal uh, distribution of justice. Yes, and uh, I'm sure all of us have seen now, most of our listeners have seen, the photographs of the massive presence of law enforcement for the Black Lives Matter protest on the steps of the Capitol and the steps of the Lincoln Memorial compared to nobody, empty steps, nobody there uh, on January the 6th. Uh, Ginger, you and I spent a lot of time at the Capitol. You know, I don't do so much as a reporter, but I live on Capitol Hill. And so my daily power walk is down the Washington Mall, right? I get around the Capitol. I mean, the idea that you could run up the front steps of that the east side of the Capitol and go in that door is just unthinkable as former Republican Congressman Joe Scarborough mentioned uh, yesterday on Morning Joe on MSNBC. Why do you scream at people for walking across the street three blocks away from the Capitol? Why are you known as badasses around the Capitol? But then Trump supporters come in and you open the fucking doors for them. You open the doors for them and let them breach the people's house. What is wrong with you? Ginger, a friend of mine yesterday said she thought maybe the Capitol Police were in on it with the Trump crowd. You know, I I think that there's going to be a lot of investigations. I think there's going to be a lot of inquiries uh, by Congress, by law enforcement agencies about how that happened. And I, I think that what what we'll find is that there there may have been some bad actors, but there were also police officers who um, were doing what they could to protect us. And in fact, there was one, uh, a man I know, who gave his life, uh, who died um, trying to protect the Capitol on Wednesday, um, who had guarded the door um, for years. I mean, he had worked in, uh, Brian had worked in the in the Capitol since 2008. So um, I, I, I am very reluctant to paint the Capitol Police with a broad brush. Um, <clears throat> That was who was telling me to hide. That was who was telling us to take cover. Um, but it is under no doubt a failure of the Capitol Police. Um, yeah. And I think that that has been said repeatedly um, on a, in a bipartisan way. Um, I think that those of us that were inside the building feel that way. Um, and it is sort of shocking. I, it, and maybe it was um, an arrogance and a naivety um, that we thought this couldn't happen here that we thought right. this couldn't happen to our capital um, and that we didn't need to fortify the capital because no one would do that. Um, and that was right. those, that image was smashed. 
Uh, and certainly when we heard, uh, and I was watching on television, not locked in like you were, but when we heard that the Capitol Police had called for reinforcements, you know, <laughs> the the universal reaction was, yeah, now that they've already occupied, invaded and occupied the Capitol, it's a little late then to be calling for uh, reinforcements. But Leah, this does raise another question. We've seen that the building, our Citadel of Liberty, that, as Ginger mentioned, we all thought was the most secure building probably in the world, after the White House maybe, um, is it safe? And is it safe to hold an inaugural ceremony there? It's it's really frustrating to watch from afar because as residents of D.C., we know that uh, when there's a major protest, usually, or even just like a, a major event, there's tons of organizing around the city. We've seen that happen over and over again, yeah. and we didn't see that for this event. Um, and it it really, I think, is symbolic of how Republicans have been handling the Trump administration. I wrote in our newsletter the morning before the uh, the riot that they, things could get violent, that there was a major risk um, that Republicans were basically perpetuating by continuing to sow doubt in the election results. And I think there was a general ignorance about uh, what the tangible consequences would be for the rhetoric. And I think reporters in general um, have, have you know, been to these rallies and talked to supporters and knew that something like this could happen. And now we're seeing Republican members of Congress and even, you know, Republican cabinet members start to reckon with what they've created and realize that they did have a hand in this. Right. Uh, and Maya, of course, uh, once the Capitol was secure, uh, and I think it was important that they do so, the House and the Senate came back to the actual floor of the House, the floor of the Senate, to resume um, the debate. But even after that bloody coup, attempted coup, right, still as many as seven senators and 138 House members voted basically to overturn the election. I mean, that even contributed, right, to this um, division in the country and perpetuating this the lie uh, that it was a fraudulent election. Yeah, and I mean, this was largely meant to be a very ceremonial vote. I mean, this is not even something that I think is thought of that often before this year. And yet, um, it's just very clear that there are a number of lawmakers who, uh, you know, in some way subscribe to this idea that the election was anything but free and fair. And I think it gets to also just this idea of, of uh, the Republican Party or what the Republican Party has become under Trump. And uh, just the the lengths that that lawmakers will go to to show fealty to him, I think uh, we'll see now over the next, uh, if not weeks, uh, few years, kind of what that means. Um, especially now, looking at lawmakers who have turned their backs on Trump in larger numbers. Um, I think the question, at least for me in my reporting, is whether or not he will still be the kingmaker that we thought he would be with some kind of influence over, say, the 2024 presidential race and how the Republican field looks there. And I'm not saying that um, the representatives and senators who voted to challenge the results of the election are all 
looking towards 2024 and that and that choice because it's clear that a number of their constituents agree with that move um but it it is really remarkable um to see now really these challenges not just to um the incoming president but to our democratic systems uh yes by the way uh those who think that uh can still consider Donald Trump as the kingmaker. Might want to ask Kelly Leffler and David Perdue uh, about that. Um, <laughs> and and let's get into that, uh, Georgia, and also where we go from here after a quick break. Now on the uh, Bill Press Pod, and then we'll be back on our with our roundtable with uh, my King and Leah Escaranam and Ginger Gibson. And today's roundtable brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Good men and women of the Teamsters Union, one and a half million strong uh, across the United States and Canada, under the leadership of President Jim Hoffa, America's largest and most diverse labor union. Uh, their uh, workers and their members, uh, as they say, represent workers from, in every field from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers with a lot of long-distance truckers uh, in between. We salute the members of the uh, Teamsters Union and thank them for their good work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back here with uh, today's roundtable. Joining us from National Journal and the Hotline, editor in chief Leah Ascaranam, reporter for polit- political reporter for Politico, Maya King, and uh, from NBC News Digital Washington editor uh, Ginger Gibson. So let's talk about the short term and the, the long term. Uh, short term, where do we go from here? Um, 
Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are asking Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and dump Trump out of the White House and Mike Pence becoming president for the next 12 days. Uh, Ginger, is that about to happen? I think it's very unlikely at this point that we would see um, the 25th Amendment invoked. I mean, if it was going to be done, there was sort of a, a runway there and no one got on it. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, these things don't tend to build momentum. They tend to lose them. Um, uh, and so uh, that's purely a, a guess on my point. Now, look, they could still, nothing stops them. And if they thought that the president was going to do something um, unsavory, they could they could try to stop him. I mean, I think that we saw President Trump in that video on Thursday night um, trying to change something. Um, and, and he has a history of doing that and then sort of reversing course. Uh, 24 hours later, uh, right. when he doesn't like what's being said about what he said or did. Um, so I, I don't think that this is over, right? I mean, now he could always, he, the, the most predictable thing about Donald Trump is that you can't predict him. Um, so he could he could totally change trend and do something like that. But um, I do know that we're seeing at least out of the House uh, Friday morning, more lawmakers talking about impeachment. We saw mm -hmm. uh, Representative Clark say that she thought a vote could happen next week. We saw Ben Sass, the Republican senator, saying on Friday morning that if the House sends them articles of impeachment, that they would take them up in the Senate. Um, so I, I, again, something that takes a lot of time, um, but if the House just came in and voted uh, on Wednesday, uh, they could, in theory, impeach him before the week was over. Is there time, Leah? I mean, this is January 8th. Uh, the inauguration is January 20. Now Donald Trump even admits that he's not going to be re-inaugurated. Uh, so, is, I mean, impeachment, that's a process. We've seen it now. We've been through it a couple of times, right? It, it, it doesn't just happen like overnight. Is there time to do it? Well, there's 12 days, you said, to do this. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, the question is what the actual impact would be in 12 days and whether, you know, Republicans, especially in, in the Senate and some moderate Democrats in the Senate, whether they're willing to put their names on something like that now when the actual political impact seems pretty small um, in terms of, you know, the, the number of days. That said, 12 days with an unpredictable president is also terrifying. So, I mean, I, I everything keeps changing every 20 minutes in the news cycle. I think most of us haven't haven't slept very much for that reason. Uh, I, I, I'll just keep track. Yeah, uh, right. And um, by the way, impeachment, of course, we're talking is the House alone that impeaches. The Senate would convict. Right. Uh, and you need two-thirds in the Senate. You, you only need, correct me if I'm wrong, a majority in the House, correct, to impeach anyone? I believe so. I think that's right. Ginger? Correct. correct. You, only, you, need, a, you yeah. need a majority in the House. You need so a Nancy, Pelosi in the Nancy Pelosi does have the votes and the authority to call the House back and the votes to impeach if that's the direction they go. Um, uh, Maya, there's a, Leah mentions, and a lot of people have said this, no, um, you know, just to have Donald Trump in the White House for another 12 days is pretty scary because we don't know what he might do. Jim Acosta from CNN gave a little insight into some of the thinking of staffers inside the White House. Let's listen to this. I'd like to get your response. 
I talked to a source, a GOP source close to the president who speaks with him regularly, and I, I take no pleasure in reporting this, uh, but this source tells me that he believes the president is out of his mind. Uh, the quote used by this uh, source uh, is, he is out of his mind. Out of his mind, Maya. So um, maybe even with 12 days, it's important to do something. Yeah, I mean, as Ginger said, the most predictable thing about this president is that we can't predict him. But it is extremely, it's terrifying to know that this man is also like unhinged um, at the moment in, in his thinking. And I mean, yes, there are only 12 days left in his presidency. But the question of what more can he do is really uh, it's kind of jarring at this point because he still has he still has the power of the presidency. He's still the commander in chief. There, there are a number of things that he could do. None of them would make much sense at this point. But I think Republicans and Democrats alike are just, um, if they're not trying to get him out of office immediately, hoping that he might just um, sit still or or go to Camp David for the next two weeks or go golfing or or something like that until until they can actually, um, you know, put Joe Biden in the White House. And yesterday, uh, President. Trump said that he was committed to a peaceful transition of power, whether or not that's actually true, whether or not he actually is committed. Um, I guess we will really see in his actions over the next few days. Yeah. Well, the other possibility, of course, is um, that Donald Trump could pardon himself of all wrongs past and future, or at least to uh, attempt to, certainly all wrongs uh, at the federal level while he's in the White House. Leah, uh, what's your reporting? Um, some people have said that the president is actively discussing this with aides in the White House. Well, I don't know if I have any personal insights into you know Trump's conversations beyond what's being publicly reported. I think part of the question, and actually Ben Sass mentioned this this morning, a uh, Republican uh, from Nebraska mentioned earlier, uh, is whether the priority right now is uh, establishing consequences for Trump or whether it is uh, restoring some sort of peace to the country. And that's something that we've seen historically discussed. That is um, why President Ford decided to pardon Nixon, um, you know, to, in order to keep things running smoothly and to move forward. And I do think there will be a desire um, among definitely Republicans, um, but a lot of Democrats too, to move forward and, and litigating Trump's past legal issues is is not going to bring them in that direction. Do you think, Ginger, there would be enough votes, bipartisan votes, to censure the president um, for his role in inciting this mob and what what, uh, what transpired? You know, I haven't seen a whip count, but I would imagine yes, especially given the bipartisan criticism um, and the fact that lawmakers love a vote that sends a message but doesn't actually do anything. Um, and this would be that uh, in a nutshell. Um, yeah. I, I think that, um, you know, I talked to Ted Cruz on Wednesday morning as he walked into the Capitol building um, and I and I asked him what he said about people who said, um, you know, he was undermining our democracy and he scoffed at me. Um, and I think that the tone change in Ted Cruz in the last 48 hours is really telling. Um, they realized that this is not what they thought they were doing and not what they thought it was going to be and that um, they played with fire. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that 
it is still, though, to be determined if that turns into action on behalf of the U.S. Congress. Now, we can't let you go without at least talking about the other big story of the week, which is on Tuesday, the day before this chaotic uh, January 6th in Washington, D.C. Democrats took control of the Senate by winning a double runoff in the state of Georgia. Maya King, you've been doing a lot of reporting uh, from Georgia and about Georgia. Um, And most people say, would you agree that this was largely due to the massive turnout of African-American vote? Absolutely. Um, Both Ossoff and Warnock said that they would not be able to win their elections if black voters didn't turn out. African-Americans are about one third of Georgia's electorate um, and a huge, huge mobilizing force. When Democrats, um, when when Joe Biden opened up a lead over Donald Trump in Georgia in November and eventually took the state, it was really a remarkable moment for Democrats um, and a, a moment where even, you know, some folks just didn't quite believe as we, as we have seen and reported. Um, but you know, the work of folks like Stacey Abrams, Latasha Brown, um, a number of black organizers on the ground who mobilized voters in places like the Metro Atlanta area, as well as a lot of these small rural counties in Georgia that have really large black populations um, that haven't turned out before. Uh, We kind of put it in three categories of voters that really put Democrats over the top and helped them essentially pull off a miracle twice, both in November and on Tuesday. And that's black voters, first time voters and young voters. Um, and these, uh, there's some overlap, of course, there. Um, but Georgia's demographics are changing rapidly. You have this influx of younger, um, more liberal-minded folks that have moved to the state. A number of immigrants have also um, moved there over the last few years. And these are folks that do tend to vote uh, overwhelmingly Democratic, and but not necessarily in the past few years. And so um, Abrams was well aware, as, uh, I think, from her founding of the New Georgia Project, which aims to turn out these kinds of voters. And it was founded in 2014. And that was really when those efforts started. Um, and they got extremely close in 2018 with Abrams' gubernatorial run. But I think we saw really the culmination of a lot of this work, not only to register folks to vote, to mobilize them, get them to the polls, get them to understand their rights at the polls, um, and eventually, of course, vote to elect Democrats up and down the ballot um, in November and again on Tuesday. And it's really, I I just can't overstate uh, just how incredible I think that this has been. And it's, of course, a very historic moment um, with John Ossoff, who's extremely young, when I think the youngest senator uh, to the youngest person to head to the Senate since Joe Biden, um, and, <laughs> and Raphael Warnock, who is the first Black popularly elected Democrat um, from the South to to go to head to the Senate in American history. Right, and it wasn't a sure thing, Leah, that the Democrats would win. Hardly a sure thing, right? And Repu- Republicans were counting on Donald Trump to help them deliver these two races and hold on control of the Senate. Uh, Trump proved not to be that helpful and maybe even hurtful, correct? Correct. And it should not have been surprising at all. Uh, I mean, the result, I mean, the idea of Democrats winning the Senate in Georgia, sure, that's surprising. But the idea that Donald Trump is not helping with a special election when he is not on the ballot, 
that is, you know, a story we have seen written over and over again throughout the 2018 cycle. Uh, I've really found it baffling that since November, Republicans have been taking this victory lap after, you know, nearly losing the Senate and now officially losing the Senate, losing the presidency and not gaining enough House seats to to win back the majority in the House. Um, and Democrats, likewise, have been kind of mourning ever since, which I've also found baffling. Um, I think what we're seeing now is that the socialism issue and progressive calls for the police and or progressive calls to defund the police um, that were blamed for uh, Democrats not hitting expectations on election night might not have actually been Democrats' issue. Democrats' problem was that Trump was on the ballot and he's not mm-hmm. going to be on the ballot in 2022 or in 2021 when there are governor's races. Um, this is a huge political problem for the Republican Party. Right. And it certainly was unhelpful when Trump himself, uh, well, Trump, some of Trump's uh, supporters actually urged Republicans to stay home because it was an illegitimate uh, election. But Ginger, uh, the other impact of this uh, double win in Georgia is uh, good news for Joe Biden and his legislative agenda. And his cabinet and all of his yeah. appointments and his judicial nominees, um, at least for a time period here, um, there he's going to have friendly, uh, 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 you know, faces in the Senate running the show. Um, you know, I I published a story this morning from uh, Sahil on NBCNews.com looking at sort of the things that are going to happen that wouldn't have happened before and what Schumer is going to be able to do. And to be clear, it's not going to be everything on the Democrat wish list. You know, they're not going to be able to do some of the biggest sweeping changes. If you can't get Joe Manchin on board, it's going to be very hard uh, to get some of that done. And and lots of things will still need 60 votes. So they'll need Republicans. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that we're going to see um, a Senate willing to do a lot more than it had been if Mitch McConnell had stayed in charge. Right. And of course, Kamala Harris there, anytime they can at least get up to a tie vote, right? She'll be there to to break the tie. Uh, what a week. What a week. Thank you so much, uh, Ginger and Leah and Maya, for bringing us up to date. But before you go, uh, all right, we have 12 days left. Donald Trump is in the White House. Um, just your wildest thought about what the hell uh, is going to happen in the next 12 days. What do you think Donald Trump is? We don't know, as Ginger pointed out, maybe the uh, ultimate wisdom of this morning's roundtable. The one thing you can predict about Donald Trump is you can't predict about Donald Trump. But let's try anyway. What do you think you're going to do for the next 12 days? What's your scariest, maybe, or uh, most hopeful moment? Leah, start with you. Uh, I think that on Inauguration Day, Trump is going to find an excuse to not attend the inauguration that has nothing to do with protest, like that he had plans to golf that day, and then later will uh, release some sort of unhinged statement where he uh, disputes the election results. But that's just a that's just a guess. Do you think he stays? Do you think he stays in Washington until then? Oh, I don't know. That's that's one that I can't figure out. That's one where I'm not. I can't decide. <laughs> uh, I think the fact that he will not be at the inauguration is one that we can count on. Uh, <laughs> whether he's invited or not is another question. Ginger, what do you see Donald Trump up to for the next 12 days? Um, you know, my biggest question that I don't know yet is whether or not he tweets for the next 12 days. Um, Twitter turned him off. And then oh, um, it wasn't clear if that video that he posted 
um, sort of meant that he had his Twitter back again. Um, but you know, I, I think that he ceases to be president on January 20th at noon. I think that that's, uh, the only sure thing I'm willing to wager a guess on. And it, and I know I wrote this first person about what it was like to be in the Capitol, um, on, on Wednesday. And as I was as, as the Senate was coming back in, I stopped and I talked to Delaware Senator Chris Coons, who I've known since he was the um, the executive of Newcastle County, so a very long time. And he, I asked him, uh, after all of the things he had been through, did he think this morning that this was going to be the craziest day of his political career? And, and Chris looked at me and said, I, I'm not convinced that it is. Uh, we've still got two more weeks. And so those words have yeah. stuck with me. Um, and I think that we should just, uh, you know, stay buckled in. <laughs> Maya, what are you anticipating? Well, I was thinking the same in terms of uh, President Trump still having his Twitter feed. Uh, so I know that we can be sure that he will probably be tweeting. Whether or not, though, he uses it now to incite uh, any more violence or any more activity among his supporters is kind of what I'm looking at at this point. Um, and I, 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 we know also that he likely won't be at the inauguration, though his vice president will be. So perhaps also he'll fire off a couple of uh, more attacks against uh, Vice President Pence. Um, but, you know, there is definitely this eerie feeling that we're just not out of the woods yet with this man and, and that there might just be more to come in the next 12 days. Um, so I, what, one thing we know for sure is that we have 12 days left. Um, and, and I guess we will just have to see exactly what he decides to do with those, with that time. Right. And I'll just add my own two cents. And again, we don't know, and this may be more hopeful thinking than, uh, than not, than anything else, but I believe Donald Trump finally realizes he's at the end of the road. He doesn't have enough allies left to do anything. And he will realize the best thing he can do is just get on Air Force One, go to Mar-a-Lago and play golf for the next 12 days and we can forget about him. Uh, but again, I think that is <laughs> wishful thinking more than more than anything. So for this great roundtable, uh, Leah Escaranam, thank you so much, Leah. Yeah, thank you. And people can follow you? Yes, uh, at, at Leah Escaranam on Twitter. Leah Escaranam, at Leah Escaranam. How about Ginger? Ginger, thank you so much. Where can people keep up with you in between? Uh, on Twitter at Ginger Gibson. Uh, thanks at for having Ginger me. Ginger Gibson. That's it. Thank you for being there. Maya King, always good to have you back. Thank you so much. And uh, where do people follow you on Twitter? At Maya A. King. <laughs> at Maya A. King. There we go. Thank you so much, panelists. Thank you so much, all the rest of you, for listening and keeping up with the events of this uh, wild week here in Washington, D.C. We wish you again a happy, happy new year. Please, uh, more deaths from COVID yesterday than any other day since this thing began. So we are not out of the woods there yet. Be very safe. Be very careful. Wear your mask uh, and practice social distancing. Keep yourself healthy until we see you again on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. <laughs>